0: The following program was pre-recorded. On WFAN, it's time for Hello, My Name is Craig. Our weekly candid conversation about gambling addiction.
1: It's supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey. 800-GAMBLER. Now, here's Craig Carton. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Hello, My Name is Craig. Craig Carton with you as always for the next 30 minutes. Having an open and frank conversation about gambling and gambling addiction. This uh, show is not affiliated with any specific type of recovery plan or group. It's more uh, to just give you an idea of what gambling addiction looks like. How it hurts people and how the you can't overcome it You can't come through the other side of it And still have an amazing life and a great opportunities, etc As always, joining us uh, from the Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey Better known to you as 1-800-GAMBLER Is our friend Dan Trelaro Danny, good morning, how are you? I'm doing
2: very well, Craig, good morning
1: Great. Uh, and joining us today, another uh, person like myself and Dan, who is a compulsive gambler, is uh, John. John, good morning, and thank you for joining us today.
0: Hey, good morning. It's a pleasure being here.
1: So uh, I, I always start off these uh, conversations by asking how long you have been in recovery and how long you've, quote, unquote, you've kind of been sober and uh, have not gambled.
0: So my name is John F. I am a happily retired compulsive gambler, and I made my last bet January 10th, 2002. So we'll be looking at 20 years next January.
1: That's great. Mm -hmm. That's an anniversary we can all look forward to, right? That's a good one. Good for you. Absolutely. So let me go into it with you. Uh, When did your gambling start? And I don't mean when it became problematic. Just give us an idea background-wise of uh, how you began gambling.
0: Absolutely. So, my gambling started when I was about six or seven years old. Um, I grew up in a gambling household. Uh, I was raised by a single mother, but my father was a was definitely a compulsive gambler. He was also a bookie, um, and so I spent my weekends with him at Delaware Park, the racetrack, and also played tickets and formulated a lot of thoughts at an early age that gambling was important to me and. And doing gambling activities at that early age was validation um, with my mom, my dad, and, of course, with other people, too, in terms of looking for that acceptance and that validation. So really, really important to me. And my mom, I grew up right across the street from a racetrack with my mom. So I spent a lot of evenings at a racetrack called Brandywine Raceway, which is Mm -hmm. closed down now. Um, But, yeah, so a lot of my earlier years were spent um, in gambling venues with gambling vernacular gambling activities things like that.
1: Yeah, so at a really young age gambling was actually very normal. It was a part of your family's life, not just yours. It's what you saw, it's what you were surrounded by.
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: And was there ever a point do you remember as a kid looking back now with clarity when you felt either well, I want to be a part of that, you know, the camaraderie of these men and you know women or the opposite? So it was a combination of things.
0: No, it was definitely – you you hit it on the head. I mean, just wanting to feel accepted – Um, There was a lot of powerful experiences that I remember, and I'll give you one quick example with my mom and my dad. So with my dad, um, I remember when I was probably around eight years old, I hit one of the pick four parlay cards. And it was, and I remember just getting like that, attaboy, you know, great job. And I'm just thinking, this is the best thing in the world. Like picking these sports teams and winning is something that not only is exciting for me, but is is getting more attention from my dad. And again, you know, psychologically, I wasn't thinking about what was going on in my life right. at that point. But looking back, right. And for my mom, I actually hit an exacta for $84. Hmm. When I think I was, I want to say I was probably in fourth grade. So I was about 10 and my mom took the money from me. Of course, I kept gambling. And my third grade teacher worked one of the uh, box seat slash w- um, par- um Window seat, so I mean the the box seats and also the uh the betting window, and so I would bet through him. Like my mom would hang out with her friends in other parts of the racetrack, and here I am down here for four or five races on a on a Wednesday night when I should be in bed, and I'm you know making bets with my third grade teacher. That's crazy. So, yeah. <laughs> it was awesome. It yeah, when I mean, you look back, it was crazy.
1: Yeah, Dan, we always talk about how the beginnings always seem so positive. There's usually a big yeah. win involved or some kind of positive correlation we make at an ad at, not, not necessarily an early age but in our gambling experiences there's usually something positive initially that's right. connected to it right
2: right yeah absolutely and and it's interesting because we hear that like it seems like every week craig you're right it's like that that age of onset right so a lot of people did start early and the positive experience you know john just highlighted too it was it was winning some money but also spending time with his mom and his dad. In the eyes of a child, like, that's a win in itself. He could have lost money and potentially still had a positive experience with his parents. Right. And, and he also felt like he belonged. And it really makes me realize back to a time when I went to the racetrack, and I felt like I didn't know where I fit in sometimes in school, but I just felt I was where I belonged when I was at the racetrack. So a lot of positive early experiences uh, to yeah. show here. Dan couldn't have said that any better. You know, I remember
0: back at the racetrack, specifically at Brandywine with my mom, some of her friends, like I'd sit on her knee and, and I, you know, I learned how to re- read the daily racing form at a really early age. Um, and, you know, just kind of doing some handicapping and looking at the, you know, you know what, uh, how, the history of the, of the of the horses in terms of, you know, what they were good at in terms of the conditions and how long the races were. And I learned all those things at a really early age. And for me, it was like an important thing at that age. I valued that a lot.
1: I would think also, and this is uh, misogynistic for sure, as a guy growing up, there had to come a point when you were a teenager where you parlayed that into being the cool kid. Oh, so... When I so I,
0: really quick um, to give you just a quick background, I left I left the state of Delaware at the age of thirteen and at the, at the end of eighth grade. When I went to high school, I really wanted that to be my identity. So I started running tickets in high school, right. um, and so that was like a big part of my identity and a big part of that ego involved. Right, like that was something, and I guess at the end of the day, when I look back, obviously there was a lot of insecurity because there were other areas of my life that I was failing miserably in. However, this area of my life I was looking at as being so important and upholding that identity that I wanted other people to see.
1: Sure. So when in your life did, as you look back on it now, the gambling become problematic?
0: So the the first sign was I was living in Atlanta and I ran up. Well, I don't want to say the first sign, but the first sign that was apparent to anyone else really was when I was living in Atlanta and I ran up an $800 gambling debt with these bookies and I called my mom. You know, she Western Union me the money. You know, I told her I'd never do it again, and you know, blahzy blahzy blah, blah. Now let me stop and, you there,
1: Wait, just based on on the background in your family, was your mom like, no big deal, son, this happens, you know, that kind of thing, or was it like more tough of like, hey, I'm going to send it this time, but I'm not, I'm not sending it again and be smarter. My mom, my mom
0: spent her nights when I was growing up, like I said, a lot of her nights at the racetrack, and she played, and she played the lottery, but she wasn't really involved heavily in the gambling culture like my dad was. Okay. So that information, when I shared with my mom, wasn't received very positively. Um, and at the and at that point, I didn't want to say anything to my dad because I didn't want my dad to think that I took that big of a hit. And even though even though he was a bookie and he let me bet through him and he kind of influenced me growing up, he also didn't want me making any big bets through him. Sure. So so at that at the end of the day. I had to share it with my mom because I needed that money because of the situation. Got so, it. you know, I got it. The Hershey Western knew me the money. Of course, obviously, I didn't stop at that point or I wouldn't be on the show right
1: now. Right. <laughs> so so sports gambling became your thing. That that was the thing that became uh, your, your Waterloo type of thing? Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah. Sports gambling was definitely my thing growing up in my formidable years sports gambling was. And then as I got a little older, I, you know, I kind of branched out to the casino when I turned, you know, 21. Um, of course I played poker a lot in my dad's side of my family on holidays, the wives and husbands, my dad was one of seven brothers. So including my grandfather, there'd be six, seven, eight men at the table playing poker on Thanksgiving or Easter or Christmas. And for the kids, and I was the second oldest grandchild for the kids. That was a huge deal to finally get up to the table to watch these guys play. When I was sitting in my dad's lap, helping him with his hand and stuff, I mean, you can imagine the the power that I felt. Yeah, that's why I always
1: say guys like you, like me, like Dan, we would kill it in uh, neighborhood games. Because, we, you know, it was just our thing. Uh, and then when you start going into casinos and you deal with guys that are literally, you know, their rent, their mortgage, their, you know, everything is based on it. And that's their, their livelihood. It, uh, it does become a different ball game. It's like I always say, you know, the guys listen to me on the radio who think they're great card players. I would love to play cards with those guys. You know, because the guys that have the Friday night game who think they're, you know, the cat's meow. You know, guys like me and you would love for those guys to walk into a casino with cash in their pocket because they had no chance to win.
0: Right. Exactly. And that fed our ego.
1: You know, now I was a blackjack player and I didn't like the speed of poker. But, you know, you know, early on, you know, you couldn't bring enough of those guys to my table. I loved it. Right. So sports gambling gets out of control for you. And at what age did you suddenly kind of get messed up? So I was uh twenty
0: twenty two um, and I was still living in Atlanta. I had actually moved from Atlanta, moved to Florida, moved back to Atlanta and I found uh, another gambling outfit and These guys were kind of heavy hitters down there in terms of the kind of the kind of numbers they were taking on and so me and some friends of mine got had a really bad weekend and ended up at the end of the day after the you know nowadays you could bail out any time of the day or any any game because there's so much availability. But back then, you know, that Monday night game was like the game to bail out from a bad weekend. And so for me, the Monday night game ended up being my huge downfall because we doubled down and we're end up down a little over 17 grand. So, Um, I quickly realized that the guys who I was gambling with or who who were gambling through me weren't my friends at all because they were nowhere to be found when I needed them to come help me settle up with these
1: guys. So you're the the point guy. You're the guy that owes the 17 grand. The guys that you're doing it in theory as a team with, suddenly disappear we're gonna hear the rest of that story in just a second right. and find out how uh, John actually uh, figured his problem out and it came out on the other side a much better man it's hello my name is Craig Dan Trilaro, Council on Compulsive Gambling in New Jersey if you think you have a problem if you have a loved one that you are concerned about it is an anonymous phone call 800-GAMBLER just keep that in mind. We'll continue right after this on Hello, My Name is Craig.
0: Back to more of Hello, My Name is Craig on The Fan with your host, Craig Carton, and supported by the Council on Compulsive Gambling of New Jersey, 800-GAMBLER.
1: All right, welcome back to Hello, My Name is Craig. John, when we left you off there, you owed uh, some bad guys 17000 bucks and didn't have it. How's the story end? So the story ended pretty, pretty
0: miserably. Um, so what happened was, I panicked, um, and there's there's kind of a backstory to why I made the decision that I made. Ultimately, what happened was I end up robbing a bank, hmm. um, which is pretty serious, right? It's like a jump from just kind of living day to day life. How know, did you bill. have
1: curiosity? How did walk me through that part? The planning of robbing a bank in the manner in which you did it, if you don't mind. No, no, no. That's fine. Okay, so
0: so really quick, because I know we don't have a whole lot of time on the show. So let me quickly let me explain this. What happened? So at the time, I was dating someone whose sister was a cop in Atlanta and worked the robbery division. And over the years that we were dating, she would always share these stories with us about how they couldn't catch these people, whether it was burglaries, bank robberies, you know, you know, um, robberies of other businesses, whatever. And so. As I got in this situation, all of these stories started coming back to my mind because mm. at that time, it was just entertainment. Right. It was just fodder. But as I got in this situation, in this scenario, all of a sudden, these stories started coming back to my mind. All the, you know Only a small percentage of these people get caught. You know, you know, what you do and what you say when you go in in order to avoid you know, getting caught, all these things kind of came into my mind. And so I combined all those things with a whole lot of alcohol to get the courage to do it.
1: Okay, so you walk into a bank with what a note? I walked into a bank with, <laughs>
0: I walked into a bank
1: with a nylon stocking over my
0: head, so pantyhose, okay. and a pellet gun that looked like a forty-five. Okay, yeah, and of, I demanded the money, and they gave it to me, and I left. And ironically, I had more money from that bank than I than I needed to even pay these guys off. But quickly, um, I was found out in terms of I was identified as the suspect, and I went on the run. So I was on the run for about six weeks and in, a, in, up, in Atlanta and well, yeah, I was on the run from You're Atlanta right. and ended up in Phoenix, Arizona is where I got arrested almost about seven weeks later.
1: Wow what were those seven wow. weeks like
0: the, well, it was incredible. I mean, you know, I was I went down to Shreveport, Louisiana, Vicksburg, Mississippi, and then finally made my way out to um, to Las Vegas. I went to a Monday night game in Dallas against the Packers, um, and then went out to Vegas. and I was there for about a month, up a lot, down a lot, up a lot, down a lot. Ultimately, left almost broke. Drove down to Phoenix, Arizona, because I'd never been there. was curious, and I ended up getting arrested down there.
1: So they come in, they get uh, you, and is that the moment the your life starts turning around in a weird way for the better?
0: absolutely not i wish it were so when i got arrested i got sentenced i got extradited back to atlanta i got sentenced to 46 months in federal prison and while i was in prison everything i did to get in jail i did while i was in jail the continued Mm -hmm. facade the continued gambling running tickets you know all the lies all the deceit all the things that come along with being a compulsive gambler and
1: you're Um, you're in what what type of federal facility you're in a camp you're in a low where are we at so I was so
0: I started my first year with the USP. I was at the US Penitentiary in Atlanta while I was getting sentenced in a pretrial side. Right. Then I got sentenced and went to Allenwood uh, at the low. Yeah. Okay. With white gear PA.
1: Yep. Okay. I know it well. Okay. Yep. So you're in there. You're still you're still running your game. You're not right. uh, you're not you yo, you are not convinced that maybe a forty six month prison sentence is enough for you to wake up. You're running no. numbers, you're running numbers uh, in prison, and, right? And then what happened?
0: so i was convinced i was convinced that 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 weekend where i owed all that money was just a bad weekend a streak of bad luck had nothing to do with me as a person my character my behavior my accountability any of that so i just didn't get it and i surrounded myself with other people who were saying oh that was just a bad weekend johnny that was just you know kind of reinforcing the message that i was already telling myself right so things spiraled even more out of control when i got home i found the bookie started getting into more debt Going to Atlantic City several times a week. And at the end of the day, when it all came down to it criminally, six more banks, four more hotels.
1: Wow. And, so you actually wow. decided to rob banks again to pay whatever debts you had. W- well,
0: that was my solution, right?
1: But like, so, like yeah. looking back on it, you didn't successfully rob the first one. You got caught. I got told on. But yes, I was called. You got told on. So in th- yes. so you told someone that you were robbing the bank or that you robbed it, and that person told on you? Pretty much, yes. God, so in theory, yes. I want to just want to get this right. In theory, had you not told anybody, you felt like you would have gotten away with it.
0: I probably would have gotten away with it. Got I don't know it. how things would have ended, but that day I probably would have gotten away with it, sure.
1: So you get out of prison, you now rob four more banks successfully? Six more banks and four more hotels, and four hotels. So, would you go up to like the hotel check-in person, hold out a gun, and say, "Give me the yeah. money"? Yeah, that kind of thing, right?
0: Yeah. And when people ask me why hotels, I said because the banks were closed. All the hotels were after five p.m., six p.m., seven, sometime at night.
1: And ballpark, oh. how much kind of money are we talking about?
0: Um, the most, the most I got from a bank was thirty-one thousand. The most I got from a hotel was seventeen hundred.
1: Okay, and. Then what? You, you wake up one day and, and you found God. You got in trouble. Got, what no, happened? I got, I got,
0: I got arrested. Okay. I, I was sentenced to twenty years in prison. Wow.
2: Wow.
0: I I did seventeen years of that twenty. Wow. So I was arrested. I was arrested two months after nine eleven, and walked out on October 29th two
2: thousand eighteen.
0: Wow. So a lot of time.
2: Yeah, that's a lot of time. And, that, 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 and, I mean, wow.
0: And for me, a lot of time meant a lot of thinking, a lot of a, a lot of reflecting. And I knew early on that I had made some really bad decisions, despite any of the other influences in my life. I had made some really bad decisions, and in order to salvage the rest of my life, I had to start making really good decisions at that point, even while I was incarcerated. Right. And so I started. Um, I started kind of getting serious about my recovery. Um, I started thinking about what I wanted to do with my future, Um, and so I started going to school. I started getting involved in programming. I was a high school instructor for 11 years. Um, I was an instructor for an alternative to violence program. Uh, I got involved in a lot, and I started to understand my value outside of the gambling arena.
2: Hey, John, let me ask a question. When you were first, after September 11th, you've got the 17 So you're serving 20 with an 85. You're serving 17 years. Right. Did you start that same gambling behavior or have thoughts while you first stepped into that facility to serve the, that okay. time? Or did you immediately yeah, so, stop?
0: Great question, Dan. So this is what happened. When I was arrested, the first two months of that time I was gambling, I actually broke the, you know, it's all ego, right? I broke the ticket man down and took over the ticket operation on the pod I was on. This was when I was still in the pretrial phase. So I was gambling with another guy. We were playing We were playing knock um, Gin, and he comes across this South Oaks gambling screen, which at the time I had no idea what that was, and I start looking at this, and I'm actually – I happened to be in a cell. It was a very serendipitous moment for me. I was in the cell by myself. My other cellmate was at a visit, and I had this information in front of me, and I'm reading all of these questions. Have you ever done this? Has this ever happened? Have you right. ever lost sleep? Have you ever thought about suicide? You know all the questions on the box. And – All of a sudden, it just really hit me that gambling had affected my entire life, including my family, my financial life, my most everything. I mean, obviously, I didn't get it all on that one day, but that was the first day, and that was January 10th, 2002. That's the last day that I made a bet.
1: So that was your epiphany this rare, weird kind of moment where you're left alone and bang, uh, like a GA type of documents in front of you, and you happen to read it.
0: Right, and fortunately for me, there was Gambler's Anonymous meetings in really? in the prison.
1: That's great. So let yeah. me, the, you know, I was incarcerated, so uh, although I was in a camp, so by no means would I ever compare it to your experience uh, behind bars, because it's, it's different, I, and I recognize that it's different, even right. different than a low, you know, and I was probably only a couple miles from where you were. Um, did, it, to me, when I hear someone say what you said, it's like I get a death wish. Yeah. in that you went into a bad place a prison's a bad place and to try to take over another guy's action, that's a guy that doesn't give a damn.
0: Yeah I mean it was uh, it was just a kind of part and parcel to where I was in my life, what was going on. Um, and you know it was a, it was an interesting scenario where this guy got comfortable for the first several weeks of the NFL season because nobody was hitting his tickets and again, I'm not saying I'm some parlay you know parlay master at yeah. all. Obviously, if I was, I wouldn't be having this again, having this conversation with you. I'd be a professional gambler, right? However, um, I had a couple, I had a couple weeks in a row where I knocked his, knocked his boots off, and he lost all his money, and he he had no he had no commissary to back it up anymore. So Got the solution it. was, I'll just take over your tickets, and he was cool with it. And I cut him, all I right. cut him loose for about half the amount of money he owed.
1: There you go. Talking to John for another a moment or two. Uh, we're going to be a little late for Evan Roberts, but I'm thinking because of this story uh, that that'll be just okay. So you, you, get, you start going to GA while you're uh, incarcerated, and then how, how much did you change as a person once you truly conquered the gambling addiction? Because you were still locked up when that happened.
0: Yeah. So for me, and of course you guys know firsthand how much gambling is in prison, right? It's everywhere on anything. Yes. And so for me, it became a matter in the first few months, just like anybody in recovery of just kind of resisting, you know, not, not trying to get near triggers, um, not trying to continue to associate with some of the same people. And so interestingly, those decisions were quite easy for me at the time. Um, and so there was one incident that occurred. Um, early on, when I was in Gamblers Anonymous, and it was actually a member who still works here at the Delaware Council on Gambling Problems, also hosted the GA meeting at the prison, and she asked me to write my story. Um, about to um, this conference where there was going to be a bunch of attorneys, prosecutors, basically the Delaware justice system, a conference, ironically, at Dover Downs, and and talk about not only my story, but what changes I thought could be made within the justice system concerning sentencing guidelines and and gambling treatment, things like that. And that was the first time where I saw myself differently in a much more productive way.
1: You saw yourself as part of the solution, not part of the problem. I got it. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned gambling in prison. Yeah, you're so right. You know, uh, I made it clear to everyone when I got there, no thank you. You know, I was offered every card, every ticket, you name it, on every single event. And then, you know, people in prison are funny sometimes. So it went from they ultimately respected the fact that I didn't want a ticket. So they stopped offering it to me. But then guys would come by my bunk and ask me who I liked in a game.
0: Right, you know, yeah. that's an ego thing right
1: there. <laughs> you know, to try to, you know, they they wanted to know, hey, yo, know, who should I put my mackerel on? You know, that right. that kind of thing. I was like, guys, you know, you know, I'm not playing. Yeah, you, know, right. you know, I hope you win, but I'm not. Then the guy that ran the ticket asked me to create parlays for him. Right, oh, boy. because you, because technically they're looking at it from a you're not gambling, you're not making a bet perspective. Exactly, and they listen. A, they don't care. Right. B, they don't know any better. Um, yeah. But yeah, so they I they came at me three different ways. Right. Um, so I could definitely relate to, relate to that story. So when uh, when your CO or when your case manager came to you, John, and said, "We got a date. You're going to walk out of this prison on such and such date." Tell people what that moment was like for you.
0: Well, so it came through a parole hearing, um, and it wasn't guaranteed. So uh, the guy the guy who was my parole, so I was up in PA at the time, and he was the institutional parole hearing officer. So he was there live while the parole board members from Harrisburg were behind him on a, on a big screen computer. And he told me, he said, listen, you're getting a one-year hit. He goes because I had just got up the PA and I was on I was basically on a on a on a bit that was running concurrent with Delaware, and he said we're going to give you a one year hit today because you haven't served much time in the state system. You have a robbery. Trouble. He goes unless you wow me today. Hmm. I was like, holy crap! Okay. So he was He's giving just, you he was giving you uh, the hail mary. He said, yeah. So he gave he said you got ten minutes, and that wow. was it. the bail So wow. so the first so the first thing I said to him I said. The the I said the reason I'm here today is because I had my head so star- so far stuck up my behind use a different word right. but I but you understand and I just kind of I just kind of poured my heart out about what had happened in my life where I had been what I'm doing now and what I plan to do when I go home and he, he stopped he played with his pen for a minute after I finished and he looks up at me and he goes well Mr Schmidt you're going home wow. and I, I, I and at the time wow. my mother was my mother was, was 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 within weeks of dying of lung cancer
1: so wow. you got home to see her.
0: I got home this year. Yeah.
1: So let me yep. ask uh, before we wrap this up, you know, a lifetime in prison, a lifetime before that, gambling, running your life. What are you doing these days?
0: So it's interesting you you asked because at 12.05, I'm actually going to be at a middle school virtually down here in Delaware, and I run a program called Kids Video Games and Gambling. I'm the Prevention Services Coordinator for the Delaware Council on Gambling Problems. So my job is to go to middle schools and high schools, talk to kids about underage gambling. um, And of course, now we're adding the video game piece. Of course, Dan knows a whole lot about that. Um, And and I also go into uh, juvenile justice facilities. I go to halfway houses. We give trainings to the state police um, for understanding addiction in the field we get um training to probation offices so i'm very grateful to be where i'm at today and obviously it's a part of my is a product of my experiences but it's also a product of the fact that i worked really hard to get where i'm at just like i worked really hard to go to jail
1: yeah listen you earned you earned everything you earned the the prison sentence both bids and you earned what you have in life now so it's it's all it's all merit-based right
0: right absolutely and I, I can, you can decide your way into trouble and you can also decide your way out of it.
1: Do you find that kids are receptive to your
0: message? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I don't share this message with all of my audiences. Um, I kind of, you know, I kind of decide what the, you know, what the... The, I guess what the audience is receptive to, right. with the administrations and teachers and things like that as well. Because you got to be sensitive to, you know, some of the kids. I'm talking about sixth graders, right. you know, ninth graders and things. So some of that stuff conceptually is a little over their head. So,
1: um,
0: But of course, when I go to the juvenile justice facilities and talk to kids about my life, oh, they're definitely all the way in. That's a, yeah, that's
1: a different audience for sure. Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. And Dan, so, how big a problem is uh, late elementary, middle school for, from a gaming standpoint? Not necessarily... The way you and I and uh, John gambled by the right. addiction to gaming. How bad is that now?
2: Yeah, we're seeing that a lot in New Jersey. I mean, yeah. the, there's gambling mechanics within gaming. Right. And we're starting to see more of the youth, the middle schoolers, the teenagers. I mean, Craig, you have kids. I have kids. You know, we're seeing more kids spending time online, spending money, and it normalizes that behavior. It's the normalization of spending money at an early age, taking chances where there's an unknown outcome. And that's part of the breeding process that we talk about.
1: John, I hate to to ask this question, but it's on my mind, so I'm going to. to Are you – let me – how do I phrase this? Were you surprised – two different parts to this. A, at how easy it was to rob a bank, and B, how you became so comfortable doing it?
0: So, those are good questions. Um, I I guess so. Um, I I don't know if it was easy. It wasn't easy for me to do it. I mean, it took – You know, a a couple times there were there were situations where I just didn't go in. I just didn't feel right. I didn't feel. I felt off. I felt like somebody might have saw me or whatever. Um, But yeah, you know, repetition is the best teacher, right? So um, once once I did it the first time, and of course once I got out and did it again, then yes, it became easier because it just became my fallback solution to all of my gambling issues. So it was
1: always, it was never hey, it's Wednesday, I'm going to rob a bank. It was hey, I owe the bookies 15 grand, I got to go get the money. Got it.
0: Right, exactly. So I wasn't thinking about the impact it was having on victims, the impact it would have on my family, the impact it would have on my life, the impact it would have, you know, on my future. I wasn't thinking about any of those things. I was looking at it strictly from a I need the money, this is the best solution to get it right now.
1: Well, uh, I appreciate you sharing the story. I could talk to you for another hour as Dan could too, but we are up against it uh, let's right. stay in touch and you know if i could ever you know offer my services or speaking uh, to your group in delaware by all means count me in i'd love that opportunity to do that with you
0: Absolutely, guys. It was a pleasure uh, joining you today. I'm hoping that your audience, um, you know, was able to glean a few things in a positive way from the message. And, uh, you know, guys, keep doing what you're doing, man. We, we, you know, the work gets done because it has to. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about getting the message out, getting the work done so people can start healing and understanding the impact that compulsive gambling can have in their life and in their family's life.
1: look, I think the message is what Dan and I try to impart every week. It's serious. It can be really, really ugly. There's uh, bad ramifications, but it's also something that you can conquer and come out on the other side and have a very productive, happy life afterwards. You can.
0: Thanks for having me on today, and Godspeed, continue to do what you guys do, and I'd be happy to uh, join you guys again in any capacity you need
1: me to. Sounds good, John. Thank you so much. Enjoy the uh, middle school kids you're talking to today. Dan. Thanks, John.
2: Have a great day, guys.
1: Dan, any final thoughts off of that? You
2: know, I've had the privilege to know John for the last maybe three years, uh, two and a half, three years. We've spoken at a couple of events together, and he is just a testimony to what you said earlier. You know, you you earned everything you got. You know, you earned that that prison bid, and you've also – he's working hard in his recovery, and he's spreading knowledge. He's spreading information, and he believes passionately about getting out to the kids, the early prevention, so that other kids don't follow the same path he took.
1: Yeah, he seems, uh, you know, listen, once you live in life and you're honest and open about it, all the doors start to open. I firmly really believe do. that. I think
2: they really do. once we get out life of our own so heads and
1: do. our own egos and all that stuff, I truly think that anything is possible. And listen, there's a guy that spent nearly 20 years of his life in, life in prison.
2: You yeah, know? he lost so much time. And he, he went to prison after, I mean, September 11th at a time when so much was transitioning. And, you know, to spend 17 years you know, I, I remember talking to a guy who spent 32 years in prison and, you know, they were, the advent of the smartphone happened while he was away. He had no idea how to use a phone. I mean, right. all the things that you miss in 17 years on the outside is, is mind-blowing.
1: Listen, if you have a problem, if you think you have a loved one with a problem, call 800-GAMBLER. That's the uh, Council on Compulsive Gambling for New Jersey. Dan, great as always. Appreciate the time. and We'll do it again next Saturday.
2: Sounds great, Craig. Have a great week.
1: And final message. If you have a problem... This is a problem that can be conquered. Uh, Do not think or use the despair that you might have to make bad decisions. Get the help you need because you can come through it. And I hope that's the message that you learned from at least this portion of uh, Hello, My Name is Craig. Dan Trellaro, Craig Carton, great to have you here. Evan Roberts is next on The Fan.